Lord, this is our prayer that you would speak. And when we open up your word, when we read it, when it is being proclaimed, you're speaking to us. And if you're speaking to us, it is our responsibility to be listening. And yet we come before you humbly dependent because we know that apart from your working in us, we cannot hear rightly. Without your help, unbelief will prevail. We will resist. We will not listen to your word with a faith-filled resignation. So we ask that you would help us this hour, help us this day as your word is proclaimed in all the ways that it will be, uh, the songs that will be sung, words that will be spoken to each other. But help us to listen and conform us more and more through the power of your spirit and to your image, we ask. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This morning, uh, if you would be turning and making your way to the book of Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And this has been a very, very convicting section um, and portion of scripture in my my own heart. Um and it's 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 been doing a number on my own heart, and I'm I'm thankful to the Lord for that. Last week that we were together, we we began uh, looking through this section, and this section really it, it's uh, well this first section is found in verses 30 through 37, and we managed last week to make our way through verses 30 through 30 through 34. And as we were careful to note, all of verses 33 through 34 is background to what is going to occur in verses 35 through 37. In other words, Mark is sort of giving us the backdrop. He's giving us the background. He's laying the foundation so that we can really understand what is going on in verses 35 through 37. And in this section, this is where the selfish ambition of the disciples is being exposed by Christ. That was in verses 30 through 34. Jesus and the disciples, having left the vicinity of the Mount of Transfiguration, they began to make their way through Galilee, and this was, by Christ's design, a private journey. Um, Christ is ending His earthly ministry in Galilee and is ultimately heading to Jerusalem, to the cross. And so the, the, the days are drawing near when Jesus is going to give his life as a ransom for many. And this event, to say the least, is going to, in many ways, in every way, rock the world of the disciples. So therefore, Jesus is seeking to prepare them as much as he can. All of these moments are critical to their upbuilding, to their edifying, to rebuking them, to teaching them, to admonishing them. 
So Jesus went through Galilee with the disciples, purposefully avoiding any notice, in order that he might have his undivided attention given to his disciples, meeting the needs of his disciples. And particularly what our Lord is doing at this juncture of his ministry, and he's been doing it this whole time, but, but it's really ramping up now, where our Lord is now preparing this, the, the disciples for the event of the cross and their life and ministry after the cross. He's preparing them for the event of the cross and he's preparing them for life and ministry after the cross. And ultimately, the cross was going to have to serve as the paradigm for all that they would do in life and in ministry. It's all about the cross. As we saw in chapter 8, verse 27 and following, the cross work of Jesus Christ was to be the catalyst for their lives as disciples. Like Jesus, who is going to lay down his life and take up his cross, they too will have to do so as his disciples. They were to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him daily. The cross was also to serve as the catalyst for their leadership among God's people. This we will see with full clarity in chapter 10 verse 45 where our Lord makes it clear that he came not to be served, but literally to give his life a ransom for many. And as we said, this, this whole section beginning here is leading to that great crescendo, that, that statement where our Lord, in very clear terms, draws an inextricable link between the cross and leadership. True leadership, our Lord is seeking to teach the disciples, true leadership in God's kingdom and economy is servant leadership. It's servant leadership. We saw in verse 31, this was precisely what our Lord was beginning to teach them. He once again with force and intensity brought to the forefront of the minds of the disciples the reality of the cross. It is coming. He was indeed going to be delivered into the hands of men. He was going to be murdered and rise from the grave three days later. And last week we talked about the nuances there, how he speaks of those events in the present in order to, in their minds, bring it to their minds in a vivid way so they can feel the weight and intensity and imminence of this event. It is coming. But Jesus keeps that reality in the forefront of the minds of the disciples by doing so. Jesus, he keeps repeating it to them. And he keeps repeating it to them because as we have been seeing, they're prone to drifting. They're prone to drifting in their focus. They're prone to drifting in their sobriety concerning what God is accomplishing through the Messiah. So the subject matter of the cross is a critical focal point to rein them in, to rein their thoughts back in, to sober them, to bring them back to reality. Jesus is constantly reiterating the cross. It is coming. It is coming. However, we saw in verse 32 that the disciples, although this is the third time 
at least well, for, for, for all of them, this is the second time, but Peter, James, and John, this is the third time that there has been reference to the cross, that although Jesus speaks to them in very clear terms and with great emphasis, the fact is the disciples still failed to understand once again what Jesus was getting at. And not only did they fail to understand, but they also were afraid to ask him. We saw there that the disciples, blinded by their own preconceptions of Christ's ministry, which they struggled to relinquish, they were unable to understand and fully embrace Christ's words. It, didn't, it didn't, still wasn't sitting well with them. They still couldn't wrap their minds around the, the messianic ministry of Christ having something to do with, with violent murder and death and resurrection. This was not sitting well with them. And due to the disposition of their hearts and their failure to embrace God's interests concerning Christ, they were unwilling to move toward Christ and press into the matter for pertinent information. We, we sometimes do this. There's something that, that we we're hearing or we know of and, and we know that it's a reality, but, but nevertheless we don't want to press into it because the reality hurts or it doesn't sit well with us. And so we want to stay as far away from it as we can. And so the disciples, they, they, they have sort of this, this distance that they're keeping from Christ because the things that Christ is saying isn't really sitting well with them. And they can't compute it. And they cannot fathom it. And so they do not ask him. They do not move towards him. Then in verse 33, when the disciples arrive in Capernaum with Jesus, in what presumably was Peter's house, Jesus begins to probe the hearts of the disciples. Because in the midst of Jesus proclaiming his death, his burial and his resurrection, that is, his self-sacrificing death, dissension and infighting was brewing among the disciples. Dissension and infighting. So Jesus, he wants to, to bring this matter to the forefront. He knows what's going on in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. He knows everything. So he's not asking because he lacks information, but he is asking because he wants to draw them out. He wants to bring the issue to the table. Let's speak about it. And so Jesus wants to bring the matter out in the open, and he wants to bring God's definitive voice into the matter. So, we saw last week, he asks them, what were you discussing on the way? In other words, what were you arguing, debating, and questioning on the way? And when you take into consideration the force of the context, the way that, that Mark uh, puts these together right after the other, the idea seems to be, while I was speaking and emphasizing my impending sacrificial death, what was on the forefront of your minds? While I was speaking of what was going to take place, that I was going to fulfill the will of my Father, that I was going to, to suffer this excruciating death, what was on the forefront of your minds? Again, they're keeping distance from Christ. 
They don't want to move toward him to press into the issue, but they are, they, they, they've turned inward and now they are infighting and discussing among themselves and debating. And Jesus is saying, while I was speaking this, what were you talking about? And verse 34 then brings everything into full perspective because you'll notice Mark, he, he puts this very important causal conjunction, because or for. They kept silent because or for on the way they had discussed with one another who was the greatest. Who was going to be the greatest? Because this is what they were discussing, they kept silent. Why? It is because at that moment when Jesus poses this question, their pride and their raging selfish ambition was utterly exposed. It was brought to the forefront. They knew they were found out. While Jesus is emphasizing his humility... They were engaged in an intramural debate vying for greatness. One commentator, he shed great light on the irony of this moment. We looked at this last week, but I think it's worth repeating again. He says, quote, the unexpected question, that is from Jesus, the unexpected question brought conviction. Confusion and shame sealed their lips. Faced with the question posed by the one prepared to surrender himself to the lowliness and obscurity of the cross, they whose thoughts are all of their own status and prestige can have nothing to say. End quote. That's the irony of this moment. This is what silenced them. This is why they could not say anything. They see the stark difference between what Christ is saying and what He is about to do and the way that they are carrying on. And they cannot say anything. They keep silent. Now the text doesn't indicate to us when this, rival, when this rivalry between them, amongst them, uh, when it actually began. But as I said last week, I believe the disciples are beginning to see distinctions that are being drawn among them by the Lord. That is, the Lord, He is their leader. Uh, he knows who is who. And the Lord is sovereign o over all of that. He is choosing how He is going to use whoever He is going to use. But they're beginning to notice that. Peter clearly seems to be the leader and spokesperson for the disciples. He's always talking. Jesus is always dialoguing with him. Even though Jesus is speaking to the crowd, somehow the discussion ends up being between he and Peter. So Peter is clearly distinguishing himself as a leader amongst them. According to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 20, the Lord addresses Peter as the leader and representative of the disciples. On top of that, Peter, James, and John had the distinct privilege of seeing the unveiled glory of Christ, along with Moses and Elijah. And while this is occurring, the nine disciples are at the foot of the mountain, failing to exercise 
their delegated authority and power that was given to them by Christ. They are failing. And so all of these events, all of these realities begin to cause the disciples to think of their rank. Well, Peter, he, you know, the Lord seems to always be distinguishing him. It seems like he's going to be the leader, but I don't see why he gets to be the leader. I mean, he rebuked Jesus after all. And Peter's probably saying, well, you nine, you, you, you don't even fit in this discussion because you all failed at the foot of the mountain. And then James and John, they're going to sneak away later on and go to Jesus and sort of try to circumvent the other men and, and try to get a position on the right and left of Jesus Christ. And so all of this is going on. They're discussing, debating, fighting. There's bitterness, there's jealousy, there's envy. Why does he get those opportunities? Why did they get to go up on the mountain and we didn't get to go up on the mountain? Why does Jesus always speak to Peter? Why doesn't he speak to me? Why is Peter, why does it seem that Jesus is, 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 is ordering things the way that he's ordering them? And, and all of this stuff goes on in our hearts, right? I mean, it goes on in the church, it goes on at work, when people are set in positions and we're not set in that position. All of this goes on in our hearts. This is, I knew of this very well in seminary. Other guys get to teach in certain Bible studies and you wonder, well, why can I be in that Bible study? And, and, and all of these things begin to happen. Why does he get that position? I mean, do they think he's more gifted than me or... Does Jesus think that Peter is better than me? Or what is he seeing in Peter that he's not seeing in me? And so there's insecurity, infighting, jealousy, envy, bickering. And James says where those things exist, every evil thing is there. And that's what's happening. And the reason this is happening is that they have an earthly and fleshly perspective concerning rank and leadership. They have an earthly perspective concerning rank and concerning leadership. This is at the heart of the issue. To quote Alex Strzok, who says this, he says, the, the Greeks and the Romans understood leadership as ruling over others and as entitlement to lofty personal appellations of honor Greatness was defined in terms of power, position, authority, and prestigious titles, end quote. That's what's going on in their minds. Again, they're, they're, they're still thinking in terms of the earthly kingdom. And not that they were wrong, but that was coming. But they're still thinking, hey, when this is all said and done, who's going to be on top? Who's going to be at the bottom? Who am I going to be ruling? What title am I going to have? I hope this guy doesn't have a better title than I get to have. Hence why James and John did what they did. So this is what they were after. They could not bear the thought, they could not bear the idea of one of their fellow disciples having a higher rank than themselves in the kingdom. And we struggle with that. Now, the Lord knows that this attitude and this perspective is a direct threat to the gospel. He knows it. He knows it's going on in their heart. He knows what they're discussing. 
And Jesus, again, he's going to the cross. He's preparing them for life and ministry afterward. This is going to be critical for their ministry in the church. So Jesus knows, I have to bring this to the forefront. I have to begin to to deal with these men concerning their selfish ambition that is raging in their heart that they are failing to crucify. I need to help these men lay aside their selfish ambition and embrace the way of the cross in their leadership perspective. What Jesus is wanting to do is he wants them to see themselves as servant leaders. Servant leaders. Servant shepherds. This is why in verses 35 through 37, Jesus, we saw in 30 through 34, he, can, he, he exposed their selfish ambition. But here in verses 35 to 37, Jesus confronts the selfish ambition of the disciples. He exposed it, now he is going to confront it. And Jesus will do this in two ways. First of all, he'll do this by way of instruction, and then he'll do it by way of illustration. Notice first, Jesus confronts them by way of instruction. Sitting down, that is, in the home, and we surmise that this is most likely Peter's home. Sitting down, he called the twelve and says to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Again, the, the scene is they, they go into this home, they go into Peter's home. Jesus asks them, hey, what were you discussing on the way? They keep silent, but Jesus knows exactly what was going on in their hearts. And so now, in sort of a formal, rabbinical way, Jesus sits down and he summons them and says, hey, all of you come here, I need to teach you something. There is, there is something critical that you all need to understand. In other words, you're missing it. You're missing it. Now notice, this is in the present tense. He summoned the twelve and says to them. So this is important. This is critical. This is, this is what the text is emphasizing. And he says to them... So this fills us in on the emphasis and heart of Jesus' teaching on the matter. This is it. If you want the core truth that Jesus is trying to to relay to his disciples, this is it. And he's going to reiterate it again in chapter 10, verse 44. So this is the core of it. So Jesus is seeking to demonstrate for the disciples what rank and greatness look like in God's kingdom. And what we have in in, in these words is the summary and principle of leadership in God's kingdom. In other words, we could say this. This is the thesis on leadership in God's kingdom. This is the thesis. If you, were, if you wanted a thesis statement on leadership in the church, in God's kingdom, this is it. Notice, if anyone wants to be first. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus, he, he speaks in very generic terms here. This is concerning anyone, if anyone. That is, if anyone in the kingdom desires to be first. So, 
What's important here is this is a universal principle. It's timeless. It wasn't only for the disciples. As a matter of fact, this is the same grammatical construction, the same exact one that Jesus used in chapter 8, verse 34, where he says, if anyone wishes to follow me or to be my disciple. That is it. In other words, so he's speaking to the disciples, but then he summons that whole crowd to him, and he speaks to all of them and says, if any of you, if anyone at all, doesn't matter who you are, without distinction, if anyone wishes to follow me. He uses the same construction here. So this is a timeless principle. It's not only for the disciples. It pertains to us as well. It meets us right where we are in the church if anyone desires to be first. Now the Greek word here is the word protos. That is first in rank. Not first above all, but first among others in your immediate sphere. That's the idea there. First among others. Now, I do think it's critical here to note that here our Lord is not condemning or castigating the desire to be first. As some would interpret this passage. And I've heard it interpreted negatively. You know, well, if you desire to be first, what's actually going to happen is you're going to end up in the back of the line. And that's not, I believe, the emphasis of this verse. As a matter of fact, leadership in the church is, Paul says, a good work to desire. What is the office of, of, of overseer in the church? It is to lead. It, it, it is to be first. It is to be at the forefront And Peter says, if if a man desires that, he's desiring a good work. What our Lord is doing here, our Lord is clarifying the kingdom perspective on what it means to be first. That's what he's doing. What does it mean to be first? So you think of it in the 1 Timothy 3 sense. A young man comes and says, I have a desire to be a pastor. Well, the follow-up question is, one, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? Do you view the, the, the pastoral ministry as something that is just going to put you up out front and you will be um, the one who receives all of the accolades, the one who receives all of the pomp and circumstances? Is, is that what you see in your mind? What is your perspective on leadership? This is what Jesus is getting at. In other words, Jesus, what he's doing here is he is confronting the ill perspective of the disciples concerning rank in the kingdom. You're vying for first place. And you're bickering and debating and arguing. But but listen, in God's kingdom, first place doesn't look the way you think it looks. It doesn't look the way that you think it looks. So what Jesus is getting at is how is high rank in the church or in the kingdom, how is it to be fleshed out by those in that position? What is the implication for those who are in that position? 
Notice that it is fleshed out in two ways. He shall be last of all and servant of all. This is what it means. This is what is called the great reversal. It is paradoxical in nature. It turns the world's paradigm on its head. The world's paradigm says, if I am first, then that means my interests come first. I come first. If I'm first, then everything that pertains to me comes first. And everyone behind me needs to realize that that's the case. If I'm first, I should be served by all. In other words, in the kingdom, if you desire to be first, that is a good thing. However, being first in the kingdom does not mean what we naturally are prone to thinking it means. That is not what it means. Notice, being first in the kingdom means being last. It means being last. It means being last. Now, it's important here, our Lord is not speaking positionally here. The leader inevitably, if you think about it, the leader inevitably and necessarily must be out front. He must lead from the front. However, while he exercises leadership from the front, his interests are not out front. They're not. He sets his interests aside and places the interests of others before his own. In other words, he has the mind of Christ. He has the mind of Christ. This is what Christ is seeking to pass on to them. Have the mind that I have in yourselves because I am going to to the cross. I am going to lay down my life as a ransom for many. I am going to be last. I'm going to die in obscurity. I'm going to be rejected. And everyone else is going to be benefiting. Have this mind in yourselves. So, the leader, what Christ is getting at here, is that the leader lives as a living sacrifice for the good of others. He lives his life as a living sacrifice for the good of others. In other words, the mind of Christ. Notice, we'll look at Philippians chapter 2 very briefly. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Paul says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, our leader, the one who is out front, the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. This was his mindset, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. This is what it looked like for Jesus to be last. This is what it looked like. For Him to lay down His life in order that we might have redemption. In a sense, we, you know, we opened up with Philippians when we began this series. If you, if you want to be first, you must take the gospel's humiliating path to exaltation. Not only is the first last of all, but he is also servant of all. Now the word here for servant is not the word that is typically translated or, or, um, as slave. It, it, it's, it, it's not the word doulos here. This word will be used in chapter 10 verse 44. So, so Jesus is going to use both words, but, but here he's not using the word doulos. This word is where we get our technical term deacon from. Deacon. Diakonos. And this word, what it connotes primarily is that of service and ministry. Service and ministry. Actively, it means to wait on. A waiter, to wait on, to, to care for, to see after. In essence, leadership in the kingdom is ministry to others. That's Jesus' point. You want to be first? Well, then you're going to be last. Your interests are going to have to take the back seat for the interests of others. Not only that, but if you want to be first, you're going to have to view your position as first as a ministry to others. That's what it means to be first. More specifically, it is meeting needs. It is being a waiter. Serving the needs of others. For pastors, it is feeding and protecting the flock of God, laying aside for the spiritual good of the sheep, laying aside self, living life as a living sacrifice for the faith of others. This is what the life of the disciples is to be about. This is what Jesus is getting at. You, you all are vying for first place because you have a different perspective as what it means. But, but listen, I want you to realize that if you're going to be first, you're going to be last. In other words, you yourself, you take a back seat and your leadership is ministry. It's ministry. And how important this was going to be. I mean, the apostles, they had the responsibility for passing on the ministry to pastors. That's what they did. As they fell off the scene, they, they, a church was planted, they brought up leaders, and they were going to have to train them in this mindset. They were going to have to do this. So how important is, it was for Jesus to have this moment, how sobering this moment was for Jesus to, to be in this house with them alone and to sit down and say, come on, guys, I, I really need to teach you something. There's something that you really need to understand concerning leadership. Peter, who probably struggled, struggled with this the most, struggled with selfish ambition, he it's, it's, it's amazing to see towards the end of his life he learned this and he passed it on to pastors. First Peter chapter 5, I'll just read it in your hearing, but in, in First Peter chapter 5 you'll notice what Peter says there, beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore I, 
exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And notice, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Not lording it over. I imagine this is probably what's going on in Peter's mind as he's pinning these words. He's, he's probably thinking way back to his home where Jesus is sitting down and, and telling him that leadership is not about lording it over others. It is about being last. It is about ministry. And he's pinning this down and passing it on to these pastors and saying, this is what your ministry should look like. This is a great place to take your heart when examining it for selfish ambition. Is my goal in pursuing anything in the church a desire to serve and to wait on the spiritual needs of others? Is that it? No matter what the ministry is, Yes, this is for leaders, but it's to trickle down in the body as well. So whatever you're striving for, the question is, is that the end goal? Am I, am I serving? Am I doing it in order that I might serve and wait on the spiritual needs of others? Do you view your leadership as service or as a means of being served? What Christ is saying, and he will say in 1044, I didn't even come to be served. But not only does Jesus confront the disciples by way of instruction, but also by way of illustration. It says there, taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Now Mark tells us that Jesus... Taking a child, he said to them. He takes this child and he sets them before them. This is an illustration that Jesus is going to do. He just instructed them, here is what ministry looks like, here is what being first place looks like. And then he takes this child and he embraces this child in his arms and he speaks to the disciples. Now presumably, being that this is Peter's home, most likely this is Peter's child. And Jesus takes this child and embraces this child in his arms. Now, on the part of Jesus, this is very, very important. And I think this is the emphasis of this text. This was a strong, symbolic gesture on the part of Christ. Children during this day were given very, very low regard. They were insignificant. They did not have anything to offer. They were not productive, but they were needy and dependent in every single way. So from a worldly and temporal standpoint, they brought nothing to the table. They had nothing to offer. Therefore, they were the least of all. Yet, Jesus, 
The Lord of glory, the Son of God, receives this little child who has nothing to offer, and Jesus embraces him. Embraces him. Now, Jesus is doing this, this symbolic gesture, I believe, as the leader. Look, I'm the leader. You're my disciples. I am the leader. And based on the immediate context of this section, I don't believe that Jesus is dealing with how one receives the kingdom. I don't think that's what's going on here. He will deal with it in chapter 10, verse 13, when the, when the mothers are bringing their children for him to bless them. But here, that's not what he's dealing with. Here, I believe our Lord is dealing with who servant leaders are to serve in the kingdom. Who are they to serve? So in other words, the symbolic gesture put on display the reality that first in the kingdom truly does indeed mean servant of all. That is, servant of all without distinction. Without distinction, without respect of person, servant leaders lay down their lives for the greatest and the least. However, Selfish ambition betrays that. That's what Jesus is getting at. If, and if you're filled with envying and bickering and jealousy and you're vying for position and you just view your, your position as first as something for your own sake, you'll overlook the least. You'll overlook them and you'll be partial. But Jesus, when someone, what he's showing them is that when someone comes along who has nothing to offer, those who are filled with selfish ambition, they reject such a one. They want nothing to do with him. I mean, again, this is so that I can be served. What are you bringing to the table? Well, you don't have anything to bring to the table. Well, then I'm not going to lay down my life for you because you have to give me something. This has to be reciprocal. And if you don't have anything to offer, I don't want anything to do with you. But Jesus, the true servant leader, the true shepherd of the church, he's the greatest example. Because think about it. We have nothing to offer unto Christ. Nothing. The only thing we offer to Christ is our sin and our weakness. We only come to the table with our sin and our weakness. The scriptures constantly describe us as being helpless and weak. Nothing to offer. Yet, he laid down his life for us. And if he did it, how much more should the disciples? Why would you reject a peer of yours? I am the son of God and, and you, you all have nothing to offer me. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm God. What can you offer me? You have nothing to give to me, yet I am going to lay down my life. And if you are going to be leaders, you're going to have to follow in my steps. You're going to have to follow in my steps. You can't be partial you, you, can't, you can't serve one and not the other. You can't serve based on what can be given to you. Look at this child in my lap whom I'm embracing. You do the same. 
Notice what he said to them in verse 37. I think this brings it more clearly. He said to them, whoever receives one child like this, not the kingdom, the child. Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. In other words, Jesus says, whoever receives a child like this, like what? With nothing to offer, helpless, needy. When as a servant leader, when a servant leader receives one like that in my name, that is for the sake of Christ, that is for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of their salvation, for the sake of their growth, for the sake of their edification, for the sake of their spiritual welfare, when you do this, you are receiving me. You're receiving me. In other words, disciples, listen, your selfish ambition is going to to lead you to a place where you are going to be partial. And you cannot be partial. You must serve all. You must lay down your life as I have laid down my life for others. When we serve fervently without partiality in the gospel, we are receiving and rendering service to Christ himself. Now, this is a different context, but I think this context will will bring to the forefront kind of what we're talking about here. In, In Matthew 25, in verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick? Or in prison and come to you, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. I believe this is what Jesus is getting at when he brings this child in and with these words, You you receive this child, you receive those who come with nothing to offer and you serve, you just lay down your life without partiality for the sake of me. When you do that, you are doing it unto me. You are receiving me. And inevitably, if you receive Christ, if you're receiving Christ, you're also receiving His Father. The unbreakable chain. The implication here is rather sobering. If you deny service to one on the basis of partiality, in that moment, by rejecting this good work that God has availed to you, you are also rejecting Christ and His Father. In that moment. So how critical, sobering for the disciples. Look, don't, don't be partial. Serve. View leadership as ministry. And, and don't be partial in your ministry. 
sobering words for us to bear in mind. If we don't kill selfish ambition in our heart, no matter how and where we serve in the church, the fact is this will be our habitual pattern if we leave it unchecked. So Lord, help us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for your word that is so clear. Thank you for instructing us in it. We are all called to to serve. We're all called to, to do the work of the ministry. It takes different shapes. It takes different forms. And Sometimes we're leading and sometimes we're not. And whatever the case may be, this is how you call us to serve, to, to view our position as leadership, to view it as ministry and service to others. So help us to, to grow in that mindset, that, that mind that you had. Help us to grow in that. Help us to be willing to be last of all, to place the needs of others before our own, and keep us from partiality. Help us to be faithful servants of yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.